climate adaptation uh, is really about reducing exposure and vulnerability to climate disasters. Hello and welcome to another episode in the Sector Special Series of ESG Out Loud. You just heard a clip there from JP Morgan's Global Head of Sustainable Investing, Jennifer Wu, talking about climate adaptation. And this is the first of a three-part special addressing that, sponsored by JP Morgan Asset Management. Because it's a sector special series, we've broken the topic down into sustainable cities, biodiversity and healthcare. And in each episode, you can join me, ESG Clarity Global Deputy Editor Natasha Turner, in talking to Jennifer about the ESG risks and opportunities in each sector. This will be followed, as always, by our In the Sectors perspective. In the first episode today, we're discussing sustainable cities, the places that most people are going to be living, and the infrastructure, transport and utility sectors within them. So to start us off, what yeah, what are some of the particular ESG risks that cities and some of the things that are in them uh, face? So cities are important because uh, they have what we call non-organic physical assets that are really essential for economic growth. Um, and the questions that we need to ask first is what is actually in a city when it comes to infrastructure? And you can roughly break them into three categories. Uh, category one, buildings. So that's residential, commercial, schools, hospital. Second one is transportation. So we're talking about roads and rails. And the third category is utility. So that's like water supply, electricity, telecom, internet, and even waste treatment. So and, and if we think about these three different categories and um, consider the different type of or the biggest risks that these different categories of infrastructure could face as a result of climate change, you know, there are really four types of uh, risks uh, that we should be considering. The first one, and no one should be surprised, is sea level rise and flooding. Right. Um, so if you think about where we are at today, about 90 percent of uh, global urban areas in developing countries are actually in places like along the coasts, floodplains and riversides. And it's really not just the risk that will only happen later on. We already know that Jakarta, the capital city of Indonesia, uh, because of this risk, is actually relocating to another location. And it's also not always the cities that we expect. Um, according to a research by CDP, uh, London and Melbourne are actually potentially at greater risk than, say, Karachi in Pakistan or Addis Ababa in Africa, even though what's happening in Pakistan this year was hugely uh, devastating. The second type of risks that we need to be wary of is what I call storms. Um, so that's like a catch-all term for things like typhoon, hurricanes, cyclones, or even tornadoes. Um, we know that by uh, looking at estimates, about 800 million people uh, living in cities could actually be at risk of coastal flooding and storm surges by 2050. We already are seeing what's happened with Hurricane Ian uh, in Florida in the last week. Not only it destroyed homes and buildings, but also all means of transportation, as well as all the utilities that you know we just talked about early on. You also have countries like Japan, whereby they have encountered more typhoons this year and last than ever before. The third type of risks that we should be wary of is heat waves. And that also requires very little explanation. But I think a lot of people were taken by surprise, um, not by the impact of heat waves on people, but the impact of heat waves on physical infrastructure. We saw uh, in, in the UK this year how the runway at Luton Airport started to melt, and then also how trains cannot really operate as normal. 
Uh, many buildings actually are in countries uh, that, that are in uh, countries that are at higher latitude, like Europe, North America. They're really just not equipped to fend off heat waves, and uh, in fact, they're either so energy inefficient, or that they are actually the source of the so-called heat island effects. When you have very densely built cities with lots of high rises or closely linked buildings. The last type of risks is pollution. It's not necessarily caused by climate change, but with rising temperature, it is definitely being made much, much worse, right? And the impact is less so on infrastructure, but more directly on human health. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. Like you say, it's not so much that these things are surprising, but it's making those links between something you wouldn't have thought of before infrastructure and how that would be affected by heatwave risks that, that where you get some of these challenges. What are some of the ways of, of solving that then, or at least sort of um, trying to uh, trying to help that? And how can investment play a part in that? The, the number one thing that we all need to recognize and appreciate is that it takes far more than just private sector uh, to create sustainable cities. Um, as a matter of fact, many of the solutions that it's required for us to adapt to a warmer planet would actually require large scale uh, urban redesign or even replanning. So um, there are initiatives uh, and organizations out there like the Resilient Cities Network that includes chief resi uh, resilience officers from different cities uh, to exchange ideas and then also to work with private sectors and location to find solutions that can uh, help to unlock some of those uh, risks. And then also um, as the world faces more climate disasters, we should only uh, expect migration to go up and where will people go? They will go to cities, right? Because that's where jobs and resources are concentrated. So when we think about, you know, what solution uh, there needs to be, you know, what should a sustainable city look like? It's not really just about increasing the efficiency and resilience of the current city. It's also equally important to plan for a sustainable growth and expansion. But I would say like cities actually sits quite uniquely at the intersection of what I call environmental impact and social issues. Um, but what that means is that it really requires a comprehensive uh, policy uh, and, and investment consideration. So you need both the public and the private sector to come together to solve for um, some of the risks that we just talked about. Yeah. And, you know, it, if let's say that that happens in a, you know, perfect, in a perfect world, that's happened. You've got this working together sort of redesign of cities. What are some of the kind of new solutions that the private sector can be involved in that might that might spring up from that in areas such as infrastructure? So um, if we think about citywide, uh, before we go into, uh, as I mentioned earlier, the three categories yeah, of okay. city infrastructure. So citywide, there are a couple of things that uh, investors can think about. So first of all, how do we adapt infrastructure uh, to flooding? Right. Um, and then also the build out of what we call coastal defense uh, systems, seawalls, or even investment in wetland and mangroves as nature based barriers. Um, there's also investment opportunities to help improve what we call early warning systems, um, which is, you know, solutions that reside in not necessarily uh, one particular industry. Uh, it's a combination of technology companies as well as some of the other sectors as well. And if we look at the individual uh, segments of city infrastructure, so when it comes to building, the solution can be broken down into uh, what, what I think is short term versus long term. 
Um, and the, the, it's really important to make that distinction because sometimes some of the short-term solutions may actually cause more long-term problems. So for example, air conditioning, right? That's one solution that's short-term, can solve heat waves issues. But we saw how in large, big cities like Tokyo, right? Uh, too much air conditioning has, has actually caused more serious uh, heat island effect. Um, so you we really need to balance between some of those short-term solutions with more longer ones like public cooling centers, planting trees, uh, climate-proving uh, buildings by applying white paints, et cetera. So these may not be like new technologies, but as investors invest in new buildings or real estate type of investments. Those will be the type of things that you want to look out for. Um, when it comes to transportation, uh, you know, Obviously, uh, there is a lot of discussions around what is the new types of flood-proof public transportation infrastructure, and many of these opportunities are, um, you know, public-private partnerships. But the technology, uh, technologies, and innovations are owned by uh, many private sector companies. It is. It could be quite tempting to choose like a high-tech solution to solve for that, um, but there are low-cost interventions that can help, such as uh, cycling and walking around. They can also be quite effective. Um, and then the last category around utilities, uh, one maybe not so obvious investment opportunity is really around uh, around water supply. If you think about it, we will actually need more drinking water than what we can currently supply, especially in cities. So there's been investments made and innovations uh, around desalination facility. But the challenge with that is that uh, it does use a lot of power. It's quite costly. Um, you also have some of the other type of more venture type investment opportunities like taking water from air, like a dehumidifier. Um, so, the, so, but these are costly. Um, there are some cheaper uh, and more, um, you know, uh, ready type of investment opportunities like reclaiming wastewater and recycling as well. Um, you also have uh, technologies that look to improve what we call urban drainage. Um, and, and if you compare the current sewage system that's been controlled by a lot of the uh, private utility companies, it probably uh, is less uh, attractive to invest in the current system. It will probably make more positive societal gains by expanding the sewer network and focus on investing in what we call surface projects that helps to retain water on the surface. Mm -hmm. Okay. And you mentioned some of the challenges there, so cost, also, you know, some of the the fact that some solutions actually, when you look at them longer term, might not be, you know, as effective as you thought. Are there any other challenges when it comes to investing in these areas? Um, and then a sort of se a separate question, I suppose, is in those uh, businesses, for example, that already exist, but are, that are trying to adapt um, to some of these, what are some of the challenges with engaging with them and getting them to kind of um, recognize some of these changes that need to be made as well? Yeah. So, so unlike some of the other sectors, I think the biggest challenge with cities is how uh, inflexible the existing physical infrastructure is, mm -hmm. as well as how interdependent these different infrastructure systems are. So if you want to uh, replace, uh, you know, if you want to change one, you have to think about whether it's going to negatively impact other dependent infrastructure. So it's quite complicated. Right. Mm -hmm. And it's also quite costly to replace existing infrastructure with new ones. Um, 
And to your point about how stakeholders, you, you, you need to involve multiple stakeholders because they may have conflicting priorities. Having said that, though, I think cities, uh, again, have probably uh, uh, more opportunities than uh, if we try to address this at national level, because although the problems are huge, they're complex, um, but we're talking about a smaller scale, right? And it's easily uh, easier uh, to involve citizens and stakeholders. And many of these investment opportunities are, are real and, and implemented. Uh, so I think that that's the advantage of looking at climate disasters, adaptation investment opportunities at cities and settlement level. The other challenge, I think, is uh, we, we mentioned this a little earlier, migration. Right? It's really not about planning for now, but also in the future. Um, and, and, you know, in certain cases, the plan is not about how to change the existing infrastructure in a city. Maybe the only option is to think about migrating to a new city elsewhere. We know that there are different projects looking at in different locations to create a new sustainable cities with the goal to potentially uh, relocate people from some of the other regions to that new place. So uh, really interesting uh, opportunities, lots of challenges, not to, not to underestimate any of those. Um, but I think if we break it down into different segments and look at it, not so much a national level, um, you know, you will find lots of really interesting uh, solutions and opportunities. Yeah, definitely. And, and that's a great point about um, sort of the tangibility of it for people as well, really. I mean, you're, most people live in cities, as you say, and that's it's right there around them. There's things people need to use every day. So that that's, yeah, definitely makes it very tangible. So just quickly then, if you have any other any other points to make of just what the kind of the next steps might be in this area, just what needs to be done imminently moving forward? Um, I would say just like what you mentioned earlier, you know, really understand the scale of the challenge, right? So by 2050, about 70% of the world's population are actually going to live in cities. It is going to be the de facto mode of human is existence. And um, so a lot of the technologies that we're thinking about to solve for risks such as heat wave storms, flooding, etc., um, can be broken down into what does that mean for particular cities. I think one thing to recognize is, how, uh, is also how, uh, depending on the region, it could be very region and location dependent. The solutions that's required may actually be uh, very different. Um, but all in all, I would say if we focus on cities, break it down, look at the key, the three key sectors, you will find lots of interesting opportunities. Mm -hmm. Brilliant. Well, thanks so much for joining us today, Jennifer. Thank you. Now I'm delighted to be joined by Amy Clark, Chief Impact Officer at Tribe Impact Capital, to share her perspective on sustainable cities. So thanks so much for joining us. Uh, it is my pleasure, Natasha. Thank you for the invite. So what sectors do you think are most key to developing sustainable cities and what are the ESG considerations, I suppose, in those sectors? Um, big question. Lots to unpack. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think... The, the beauty about our, uh, sorry, our cities are that they're actual ecosystems in and of themselves. You know, they're environmental ecosystems and they're social ecosystems. So in terms of the types of investment opportunities that you have when you're thinking about um, investing through the lens of sustainable cities, let's just say, for example, SDG 11 is a kind of a default um, goal here, is that you're pretty much picking up every other SDG means you can actually invest in a broad and wide range of different types of opportunities, whether that's education, whether it's healthcare, whether it's um, kind of uh, core infrastructure like water, roads, you know, public transportation, um, whether it's looking at 
buildings themselves and energy efficiency and then obviously the carbon and climate footprints associated with the different types of infrastructure that you have within um, cities as well. It's it's an incredibly actually rich environment, I think, for an investor to create narratives around what their capital is able to, to achieve. You know, we're very, very interested in um, anything to do with the climate crisis um, and specifically carbon um, uh, management and energy efficiency is a big part of that. And that plays very neatly, I think, into a city's narrative. So investing in energy efficiency, for example, um, I think transportation, again, a really big area for us. So thinking about the EV transition and the electrification effectively of everything, not just cars, but the electrification of a lot of things as well. So within that, you know, there is the transportation angle, cars, um, lorries, buses, you know, sort of broader logistics. But and then there's also things like battery storage as well. And how do we actually create battery storage functionality and um, within city environments, hydrogen? really interesting opportunity there as well think thinking about kind of community heating not on a house by house level but community heating um, as well you know potential opportunities there as well as in again the sort of the broader logistics and um, space education you know ensuring that we have a really future for education system at primary tertiary uh, sorry primary secondary and tertiary level as well as lifelong learning to ensure that people are continuing to learn um, and be able to benefit from being part of society um healthcare i mean gosh you know the, the list is is endless in many ways well in with that in mind then what are sort of some of the outcomes that need to be achieved in order to call a city sustainable then i mean if it's kind of you know touching on all areas then what is um the difference between an unsustainable yeah. and a sustainable city i suppose yeah, well, then you're going to be looking very much at, you know, A, the metrics, for example, that are um, very clearly set out that support the targets um, that the UN has put in place for, for example, Sustainable Development Goal um, 11, Sustainable Cities and Communities. You're going to be looking at those and then saying, OK, how do we extract from that as an investor? How do we extract from that what we think are some of the outcomes and then in, um, ultimately the impact you know, measures? And you're going to be looking at, at things like e- inclusivity. So how much cohesion is there within a city? You know, the levels of inequality, um, for example, you're going to be looking at those types of measures. So things, for example, like the social progress index are really helpful for an investment um, analyst uh, or an investor more generally um, or an impact analyst to kind of get behind and say, right, okay, where is this city on things, for example, measures to do with social progress? Um, you can almost extract that question out, actually, Natasha, to the sort of like the country level. What are the real measures of well-being that give us an idea as to whether or not this country is succeeding in becoming a future fit society? I mean, that's obviously about then moving away from GDP as a measure and thinking about, you know, these broader, broader KPIs that can be brought on board. You'll be looking at, I mean, a without getting kind of wrapped up in the whole narrative around what is an impact measurement and what isn't an impact measurement. And if you're looking at performance data, you're going to be looking at things like, um, from a social progress point of view, digital connectivity, healthcare connectivity, um, educational attainment, um, all those you know um, measures that form part of the SDG 11 um, data set, but also things like the social progress index metrics that are used to define um, how socially progressive any one community is. And again, on the environment side, you're going to be looking again for very similar metrics around 
for example, how efficient, energy efficient that city is. You know, cities account for about 70% of a country's greenhouse gas emissions. It's quite a substantial figure. I mean, 60 to 80% of a country's energy needs. So you're going to be looking at metrics that tie into that as well to say, okay, well, what's the efficiency ratio there of a city? Um, as well, you're going to be looking at biodiversity metrics as well, because cities should never just be urban environments. We need them to be clean cities, um, but we also need them to be healthy cities. And healthy cities have green spaces, you know, places where people can actually increase their sense of well-being. Um, so there's a whole suite of metrics that we can look at that give us an idea as to whether or not, you know, um, the investments that are being made at that city-specific level over time are leading to the type of outcomes and ultimately the impact that we would hope to achieve. And and some of them are arguably kind of easier than others, right? I mean, metrics that measure cohesion, I mean, that, that's that got to be a bit more difficult than something that measures energy, right? I yeah, mean, yeah. do you see the same kind of um, emphasis across the board uh, applied um, across all of these uh, and even you know and then and then you're saying you kind of have to take them all all together as well so I mean yeah. that's difficult right it is I mean it's a hell of a lot more work for a traditional investment manager than they're probably used to for a right. start um but in answer to your question there are uh, well there is more focus now on for example the social progress metrics Mm-hmm. than there have there has been historically. Part of the challenge that I think that we have faced there is that with the environmental metrics, we have clear thresholds. We have the nine planetary boundaries. We can extrapolate from those down, you know, to a city level to understand what then contributes to us remaining within those boundaries that nature defines, where we potentially are already in breach. Um, or where we're actually currently, you know, within the boundary, and therefore we know what we need to do to stay within the boundary. Social thresholds can often be a little bit more challenging to try and identify. Um, so what are those tipping points? What are the social trigger points that lead to X? What are the social trigger points that lead to Y? There's much more work going on in that space now. And actually the uh, linkage between those environmental thresholds and the social thresholds as well. So for example, the climate crisis and migration, you know, looking at how significant does the um or how significant do the climate conditions in country need to be before we trigger mass migration um so there's a lot more work going on there and i my my instinct says that within the next a uh, couple of years you know even through to the next decade we're going to see a, a wholesale i think reimagination of how we think about thresholds and how we factor thresholds into materiality assessments and therefore into the decisions that we then make as investors as well. Great. Well, thank you so much for your insights. Thanks for joining us today. My pleasure. Find us on SoundCloud or iTunes by searching for ESG Out Loud. 